It is Monday, November 13th, 2023. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellams. Today, a new nonprofit is building affordable housing in Harrison. I just saw the need in our society to provide tools to groups that are looking for support to move up in life. And that is what inspired Hope 99. Plus, the unexpected business success of Gathering Nuts. It's very important to all of us that we give the consumer the very highest quality for the best price we can, and we have something for everyone. And an Arkansas-born film director's latest is a holiday story. Yes, I think that knowing that it's holiday, knowing that the script is like heartwarming and it ain't like going to be a sad ending, you know what I'm saying? First, the news from NPR. The Walmart Amp presents Hozier on the Unreal Unearth Tour 2024 with Allison Russell, April 26th. Tickets go on sale November 17th at amptickets.com. This is Ozarks at Large for Monday, November 13th, 2023. I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore. Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF in Fayetteville. Later on our show, an examination of maternal health in Arkansas. A federal initiative is identifying public health priorities and setting a national target of reducing the C-section rate to combat the high rate of maternal deaths. That's in about seven minutes. Late last month, a nonprofit called the Hope 929 Foundation broke ground in Harrison to create a new community space, a call center, and an affordable housing development. Matthew brings us this report. Elizabeth Darden grew up in Alaska, but she says her family's history dates back generations to the Harrison area. I actually grew up as a child every summer visiting Harrison area. My roots run deep in that area in Ponca. My family settled in Ponca, Arkansas in the early 1800s, and I would come every summer for a few week period at a time. So I knew what Harrison was, and and I always had a wonderful experience. The people of Harrison are are incredible and the activities outdoors, you know, going to the Buffalo River, hiking, kayaking. It's it's such a beautiful place, and which is why we have so many visitors every year traveling through the area. Darden says she's also familiar with the stereotypes and assumptions of Harrison. I had a cousin growing up as a child telling me, well, there's a hate group, you know, the headquarters of that big hate group nearby. And, you know, that kind of planted a seed of fear growing up. I was like, I don't know if I could live there because it's so different how I was brought up. And when I ended up coming to be closer to family as I was raising my family, I fell in love with it. Harrison's history with race relations is a troubled one. In the 1900 U.S. Census, 10 percent of the population of Harrison was black. 115 of the town's 1,500 residents. Two separate race riots over the course of five years led to the deaths of dozens of black people. By the end of the decade, only one black townsperson remained. When you factor in that Harrison was also a sundown town until the early 2000s and the home of the reemergence of the Ku Klux Klan in the 1990s, it's understandable why race relations are still a major concern in the city. Darden's work in racial justice in Harrison began soon after she moved there. She's a mother to three multicultural children, and as an elementary teacher, she says she wanted to help bridge the gaps in understanding. And help shift the negative narratives 
because of the community being such a wonderful place, I feel that we have been unfairly labeled. And that's what inspired my work when I first moved there 12 years ago. She helped to coordinate an event with the Martin Luther King Commission. And that event led to meeting Selwyn Jones, who was the uncle of the late George Floyd. That meeting turned into a friendship and an opportunity to meet and interact with people around the country who had experienced loss and were reaching out to Jones for solace and to cope with grief. From there, it pulled my heartstrings to hear some of the mother's stories of those who've lost their loved ones and still seeking justice, enough to the point where I wanted to move forward in my career path. I was an educator, and I just saw the need in our society to provide tools to groups that are looking for support to move up in life. And that is what inspired Hope 99. Darden often refers to Jones as Uncle Selwyn. They started a podcast in 2022, having conversations with mental health experts, community leaders, and even the grandson of Nelson Mandela. And then I was like, we're doing a lot of talking. What, what kind of walking are we doing? What kind of tools are we providing these groups of people that we're trying to help that want a better life but just need a little assistance? Hope 929 has partnered with local land developers and contractors to fulfill the Gateway Harrison Project. According to a press release from Hope 929, funding is being secured by Veterans Development Group, LLC, who will be contributing $10 million. The Gateway Project will include a 30-unit apartment complex. And centered in the complex unit will be a community resource center. It's going to be 3,000 square feet where we're going to connect the dots. What, what, is, what are the needs in the community? You know, we're still assess, assessing them and we have started strategic partnerships with various resource organizations in Harrison. And we just want to help support people that are trying to level up their life. In addition to the housing and the community resource center will be a 50-seat call center. 50-person means there's 50 seats, but there's going to be two shifts. So we're going to employ about 100-plus people. The group broke ground on the new project on October 27th. New affordable housing, a built-in community space, and upwards of 100 new jobs in Harrison is great news. But Darden says since breaking ground, she's been frustrated by rumors and misinformation being shared by some members of the community. They're thinking that we're on onto some scheme, but... The truth of the matter is, as an educator, I saw students coming through my room that went home hungry, that were sleeping in cars. And there are people in our community who are impoverished. And it's important to note that, not just sleep it under the rug and pretend like homeless people aren't in our community. There are. And we will have a vetting process for the jobs and background checks. And it's not just going to be some quote unquote, the ghetto or the hood or the George Floyd project. Like a lot of people are stirring misinformation out there. And it's unfortunate because this is a tremendous opportunity. Darden recently shared on social media, quote, despite the misconceptions and fears that have caused some pushback, we remain steadfast in our mission to serve and uplift our community. Despite that, she says the community of Harrison at large has always supported the events she's organized in the past. And the outpouring of love and support from the community as a whole has been wonderful. I'm excited for the long-term lasting effects to pour back into the community that gave me the opportunity to have a voice, that gave me opportunity to become an educator, to become a commissioner on Parks and Rec, and the chairman for Parks and Rec now sitting on city council. I get to pour back into the community where I experienced 
such tremendous growth and where I actually have found my God-given calling. You know, I live with purpose and every day to serve others. And it, it's my fuel when I wake up in the morning to give back. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Matthew Moore. Later on our show today, a few pine cones, a few hickory nuts, some fragrance, and a fortune. Who would have guessed that bits and pieces of wood chips and leaves and nuts tied up in a cellophane bag would make the world go crazy? Sandra would say, how many can you get out today? And I would say, Sandra, my fingers are just, there's just no meat left on <laughs> Aromatique is an Arkansas business success story, and we have the archives from the Prior Center to tell the story. That's coming up on today's show. Parents who live in certain parts of Arkansas are more likely to give birth through cesarean section, or C-section, than birth givers in other parts of the state, according to an analysis by the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement, or ACI. Ozarks at Largest, Victoria Hernandez spoke with ACI president and CEO Dr. Joe Thompson about this research and what's being done to address those statistics. The analysis is a contribution to ACI's Birthing Journey project. The project seeks to raise awareness, promote discussion, and inform healthcare providers, stakeholders, and policymakers as they address Arkansas's maternal mortality rate, which is the highest in the nation. So Arkansas ranks worst in the nation on maternal mortality and third worst on infant mortality. We put a birthing journey to talk about the entire pathway of having a baby in Arkansas. And we're looking at each step along that path for opportunities to improve the health and the outcomes of both moms and their babies. It's not just maternal mortality, but Arkansas ranks high in infant mortality among all the states in the nation. Importantly, yesterday, the National Center for Health Statistics announced for the first time in over two decades, infant mortality has gone up in the United States by 3%. And unfortunately, Arkansas continues to be at the top of that list of states that has a high problem with infant mortality. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reports that in 2022, Arkansas suffered 40.4 maternal deaths per 100,000 live births. The national average is 32.9. This is due to having risk of complications such as infection, blood loss, blood clots, and injury to organs. For most pregnancies, a vaginal delivery is safer. ICAI also examined C-section rates among first birth patients. For purposes of the analysis, defining a woman giving birth for the first time with full-term pregnancies and only a single baby in a head-down position. The five highest counties with C-section rates for first birth deliveries were Deshaies, Ashley, Chico, Drew, and Stone. The five counties with the lowest rates were Woodruff, Searcy, Johnson, Marion, and Boone. The placement of maternity health care near those counties greatly affects the likelihood of having a C-section birth. We have 75 counties in the state. A majority of those do not have a hospital that actually provides obstetric care or gives birth. So women from those counties have to travel sometimes large distances. And where you have to go more than one county, you have to go two or three counties, maybe even as much as 100 miles to get obstetrical care. That would be a desert where the mom can't get maternal care either prenatally or for the delivery of her baby. Statewide C-section rates for first birth deliveries disproportionately affect people of color. Statistics show that more than 32% of black mothers and more than 36 for Native American or Alaskan Native mothers, compared to just over 26% for white mothers. 
one of the things that leads to maternal mortality and some of the disparities that we see with women of color having higher maternal mortality and also C-section rates is how healthy they were when they became pregnant, the risks that they came in with. We know obesity rates, diabetes rates, hypertension rates are much higher in the African-American community than the Caucasian community. And when those women get pregnant, they carry those risks into their pregnancy. And those risks subsequently may make it a high-risk pregnancy that leads to a C-section appropriately. A federal initiative is identifying public health priorities and setting a national target of reducing the C-section rate to combat the high rate of maternal deaths. I think the maternal mortality and infant mortality statistics are like the canary in the coal mine. It's the whole journey that people are having a challenge with, from the health of the mom when she becomes pregnant, to the prenatal care that she may or may not receive, to the recognition of uh, conditions that may make the the pregnancy be high risk, the method that's delivered, whether there's home visiting and support after the baby goes home, whether mom gets depressed and appropriately treated after she's at home. This is a long journey, all of which contribute to our poor health statistics, and we're trying to shine a light on each step along that pathway. You can find more about the Birthing Journey Project on ACHI's website. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Victoria Hernandez. Victoria Hernandez is the fall intern at Ozarks at Large. The number 10 Arkansas Razorback soccer team will face Pittsburgh in the NCAA tournament's second round. Both teams used shutouts to advance. Arkansas blinked Grambling 5-0 Friday night in Fayetteville, while Pitt won 6-0 over Ohio State. Arkansas and Pitt will meet at 6.30 on Friday night. Earlier that day, Notre Dame plays Memphis. The winning teams will face one another Sunday evening in Fayetteville. The eighth-ranked John Brown University women's soccer team headed to the NAIA National Tournament after winning the Sooner Athletic Conference Tournament on Friday night. That match was in Salem Springs. The full NAIA bracket is being released today. Both Razorback cross-country teams are automatically qualified for the NCAA championships after Friday's South Central Region race in Fayetteville. The women's team won the race, their 12th consecutive South Central title. The men finished second behind Texas. The NCAA championship races are Saturday in Charlottesville, Virginia. And speaking of running, the winner of the 2023 Dash for Democracy 5K Daniel Carruth. Woo-hoo. He finished first Saturday morning at Veterans Park in Fayetteville. The race benefits the League of Women Voters of Washington County. Looking ahead this week, the Razorback men's basketball team hosts Old Dominion in Bud Walton tonight. The Razorback women host Little Rock tomorrow night. And the 11th-ranked Razorback volleyball team is at Mississippi Wednesday night. Also Wednesday night, the UAFS women's basketball team plays Southern Nazarene at Stubblefield Center. It's very important to all of us that we give the consumer the very highest quality for the best price we can, and we have something for everyone. Randy Dixon with the Prior Center. Explain that. That was Patty Epton. All right. Do you know who she was? Well, last week you ended our segment saying that Patty Upton would be the subject, and I gave you a, a blank stare. Yes, and then you told me afterward, but no, I did not know who she was. Okay. Well, she was the founder of Aromatique, um, became I mean, a millionaire <laughs> yeah. uh, because of it. That interview you heard, by the way, 
was from 1992, a KATV interview with uh, our financial editor at the time, John Barnes, did a weekly show called Arkansas Business. Um, Patty Upton died in uh, 2017 at the age of 79, but she became a millionaire on a simple, simple idea, and it became known as aromatique. All right. To be, you may ask. What is aromatique? Okay, and I think to explain what it is, I have to explain how it happened. Okay. All right, so we're talking in early 1980s, 1982. Mm-hmm. Patty Upton, living in Heber Springs, has a friend who is having some sort of function, I believe. And she needed some centerpieces and had nothing really available. And Patty literally had to throw something together. (laughs) So she went out to the yard. It was in the fall, winter, and she gathered up, you know, leaves, uh, pine cones, uh, gumballs, hickory nuts. You know, it looked like a little fall. She put it in a bowl. Mm-hmm. looked like a little fall arrangement. And then just to, to make the room smell nice, she added a fragrance. There you go. That's aromatique. Um, it is known as a decorative fragrance. And you'll hear later, mm-hmm. it's not potpourri. So she starts this company out of her kitchen, and she's she takes this material, scents it, puts scent to it. How's mm-hmm. that? Mm-hmm. And bags it up in a nice cellophane bag with a nice label, pretty bow on it, nice packaging, and started selling it in a gift shop of a friend of hers there in Heber Springs, and... Um, KATV first caught up with her uh, at her Heber Springs. I guess you'd call it a factory. It was uh, it was in the fairly early stages of the business. This was in 1989. Uh, I went with our anchor, Susan Rosgen, and we were doing a profile of Patty Upton, and here's part of her report. How are we coming with the sachets? The woman in charge of the business called Aromatique is Patty Upton, a woman who says her friends from college would have voted her least likely to succeed. They would say, you know, Upton, you were just the least likely person, the least likely person to do this. I mean, we just can't believe it. Not to succeed, maybe, but they just never thought of me as a career person to start with. Well, what did they expect you to do, be a housewife? Well, no, they knew I wasn't going to do that either. I don't, I, maybe they thought I just floated through life. I don't know. We're getting the GQ labels. Are they working out all right for you? The story goes that seven years ago, Patty came up with an idea to decorate a room with a bowl of a sweet-smelling sort of potpourri. She hates to use that word, potpourri. But whatever you call it, it's sold. Who would have guessed that bits and pieces of wood chips and leaves and nuts tied up in a cellophane bag would make the world go crazy? Sandra would say, how many can you get out today? And I would say, Sandra, my fingers are just, there's just no meat left on them. I can't stuff another bag. So this is still in the 1980s? The late 80s, late 80s. yes. And um, she was talking about working out of her kitchen uh, in the early 80s. 
But here by the late 80s, all that had changed when Susan talked to her because the company was now working out of a 100,000-square-foot warehouse, and uh, Aromatique had, had made Patty, by this point, a millionaire. So it was a simple idea, uh, but with a twist. Here's Patty. I took it one step farther, not even realizing what I was doing, and I made it visual, and that's where the creativity came in. And by putting large, wonderful things in a huge bowl, mm -hmm. and then adding fragrance, you had both dimensions. You had the fragrance, you had the visual. And it was so simple, it just sort of got looked over, I think. So she starts small. Mm -hmm. She starts getting some, some big clients. Um, major department stores, um, but she was especially excited about being contacted by some French uh, department stores and uh, because, you know, the, the French are the world leader in, in fragrances mm -hmm. and they really liked, um, she started with this, uh, the smell of Christmas and then went into the smell of spring and they really liked the smell of spring. So she was uh, excited about that, but now they were international. I think maybe people outside of Arkansas realize this more than the people that live in Arkansas. And, uh, you know, there were when, when I started with the smell of Christmas, I had selected all the wonderful things from the earth and from the ground and now when I, get, uh, when I get letters and brochures wanting me to buy hickory nuts and sweet gumballs, I mean, I have to sit down and laugh because, I mean, you know, who would have ever thought in a million years that gumballs would be for sale? You know, her kitchen industry started these other cottage industries. Oh, nice. Um, and so, you know, by 92, the company had 350 employees boasted sales of more than $50 million. And so KTV's Gina Curry uh, visited Aromatique and pointed out the importance of Patty's husband, uh, Dick, and how he added to their success. Upton admits she couldn't have started the business venture without her husband. Dick Upton was a successful businessman for years with the Anheuser-Busch Brewing Company. It was Dick who suggested that they move the operation out of the kitchen when a bag of decorative home fragrance was sold with a potato chip in it. We've, we've always used this simple formula that uh, uh, quality plus service equals success. And the formula is so simple, yet so many people find so many ways to mess up a simple formula. And basically, that's been, I guess, uh, my participation in Aromatique is to keep that formula intact every day. A potato chip. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oops, let's move yeah. it to a, to a right. warehouse. Right. <laughs> so, um, here... Let's hear some more of this interview that, that uh, Patty did with John Barnes. And uh, she talks about, you know, teamwork in her business. And, you know, everybody is a contributor. So I do, I do the things that uh, I do the best. Dick does the things that he does the best. And, you know, I, we're just surrounded by, by important, good, creative um, people and I think that's for anyone who wants to start a new business 
they cannot, you can't be everything to everyone. So you have, I mean, no one does it alone. Potpourri. Yeah, you don't, you don't call it potpourri. No, and you heard earlier uh, from Susan, it's like, no, don't call it potpourri. So just going through the archives, I found four different instances where this whole issue of potpourri comes up, whether it is during an interview that she's mistakenly asked that or whether the reporter <laughs> intentionally puts it in their story just because they realize it was kind of a, a sore point. Whether Here's our little montage. She hates to use that word, potpourri. For the perfect potpourri. Oops, she likes to call it decorative home fragrance. Well, no, it's not potpourri. You're, it's to be placed in a large open container. It's a decorative room fragrance. How have you come about to create other products other than the potpourri? We don't refer to it as potpourri, Sorry. It's decorative <laughs> home fragrance, Good. darling. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Did she ever explain what, what was her problem with it being called? Well, because it to her it was a completely different okay. thing. Potpourri okay. is something that's in a bag and you throw in a drawer. Uh, she she was proud of the visuals of it. I mean, they made they would take a, a a piece of pine wood and make them into peaches, mm, and then paint the peaches, mm, or you know, paint so a the, bit the more wood. So craftsmanship it, here. Yes, creativity yes. and um, you know they they ended up making they they've moved into candles mm -hmm. and. Uh, bathroom products, soaps, and things like that, and, and actually make their own containers and bowls. So it's more of a display with a smell right? instead of just a smell. And this is their busiest time of year. Well, Apparently, I mean, they were too busy to talk to me. Well. So um, I, I didn't get anything current mm -hmm. for this. But so, so we're stuck here in the 90s. Where... where <laughs> Where would she get the scents? The 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 oh the fragrance. There there's a whole lab in this warehouse. Not only the shipping and the preparation, but we met a guy. He was a chemist, mm. lab coat, the whole bit, and he's mixing and testing out different flavors. He even puts them on some of the material to make sure it doesn't uh, affect. You know, the, the liquid, it dries clear right. and that sort of thing. Okay. Yeah. Science. Yes. It seems like this is a this was a venture that she could experiment with. Right? Oh, I think she did every day. Yeah. Um, and, and here was another thing is that uh, I don't know if it was mentioned in the earlier reports that may have that she would personally inspect oh, wow. uh, one of each product each morning before it went out. And if it didn't meet her standards, she'd send it out. She was a perfectionist and might have been a little tough to work for. Here's, here's one last comment from her. Never be happy with what you do. It can always be better. I have never done anything that I did not think I could improve on. That's just my nature. She took a simple idea and turned it into a fortune. Yeah, um, her yeah. her husband Dick is still alive. Okay. He's he's working there. There is a CEO, um, and according to what I've been able to find out, um, just online, and um, 
according to their website, uh, and it was a store locator, there are more than 1,800 stores nationwide that carry them. Hmm. I think a lot of them are, are boutiques, mm-hmm. uh, small gift shops, that sort of thing, but 200 of those are in Arkansas. Really? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And according to Zipia, a financial website, they currently have 75 employees and revenues of just over $8 million. Nothing to sneeze at, unless, of course, no. you're allergic to pine cones or gumballs. And it's not potpourri. It is not potpourri. Randy Dixon, however, is with the Prior Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. Put Prior Center into a uh, search engine. You'll find out about Ms. Upton and so many other things. And we'll be keeping you updated. But next year, I just last week took the final shipment mm. of the final hard drive mm. of the last of the KATV video material that's been digitized. So we now have more than 25,000 hours of video that sometime next year, and once we get into the new year, we'll know closer of when it's going to be up, but we'll be able to put all of that on our website. And then we'll just have to teach you how to find stuff. There you go. Randy, we'll do this again next week. Okay, see you then. This is Ozarks at Large. The Listening Lab at KUAF continues to welcome pairs of conversationalists to our studio. A natural partner for our exercise and discussion is Bee Balm, Arkansas, a community writing experience. Julia Paganelli Marine, the creator and executive director of Bee Balm, is inviting guests to come to the Listening Lab at the Carver Center for Public Radio to share a favorite poem and talk about it. You can hear the full episodes of Bee Balm Presents on your preferred podcast platform. Today, here's an excerpt from the first episode. Hi, y'all. This is Julia Paganelli-Marine from Bee Balm Presents. Today, we're with Sophia Ordas. Welcome, Sophia. Hi, Julia. Thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Sophia Ordas. I'm a cultural programming coordinator at the Multicultural Center at the University of Arkansas and a poet uh, based in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Yeah, your poems are wonderful, Sophia. Thank you so much, Julia, and thanks for inviting me again to be here. Oh, man, I'm so pleased that you're here. Um, You're going to share a poem with us today called The Age of Plastic. Yeah, for sure. I uh, came across this poem over the summer whenever I was having a lot of um, revelations, personal revelations about just the climate catastrophe in a way that had just never affected me before. Mm. You know, I think it's something to know um logically that yeah uh carbon emissions are bad for the planet but it was another thing to feel it i think something shifted for me over the summer and i started to feel it a lot more and i felt guilty every time time i would throw away single-use plastics for example and then this poem like tapped into like what i was feeling at the time Mm. And um, a thing about Craig Santos Perez is he writes a lot about the environment and about climate catastrophe and um, honoring nature. 
and uh, he's indigenous uh, Chamorro from what is now uh, Guam. I think we should all like look to his poetry as um, a voice of clarity and uh, putting ourselves, a, a voice that puts us in check as um, humans who have um, exploited this planet. <laughs> there are also uh, italicized portions of the poem, mm. right? Would you read the italicized portions again? Yeah, absolutely. The italics read, plastic makes possible. Plastic leaches estrogenic and toxic chemicals, disrupts hormonal systems. Plastic is a perfect creation because it never dies. Whales, plankton, shrimp, and birds confuse plastic for food. Plastic labors to keep food fresh, delivers medicine and clean water. In the oceans, there exists one ton of plastic for every three tons of fish. Will plastic make life impossible? Yeah. Whenever I read this poem, I was thinking about how it's as if the the italicized portions are floating in the poem as mm. well. Sometimes they seem to be like headlines. Sometimes they seem to be like facts about plastic. But I think that's really interesting the way those are visually in the poem, too. And then that kind of formal choice. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, I agree. I think I think this poem is really haunting. And the fact that you can see plastic floating in the poem as you put it um it just makes me think about plastic floating in our oceans um and it's the heartbreaking part is that it's like juxtaposed with like how plastic is essential to the birth of the poet's daughter you know mm -hmm. and so um when it comes to like honoring plastic plastic has done a lot for us but we never think plastic too that's something I thought about a lot when it, when I read this poem because I was I was thinking back to um, a friend and I we were talking about um, praying um, and just like with well, a concept of prayer is a lot of times sold to us is like you ask a creator for something but you aren't doing like the check in of like hey thank you for this thank you for this mm -hmm. or like oh this is how I've been you're not checking in with the creator that you're honoring before you ask. And so I think we do a lot. Plastic is like a perfect representation of that impulse that we have to just take and use. And we never honor plastic. We discard it. And now we are, um, our, our futures are in jeopardy because of that. I'm interested in kind of what was going on in your life when you encountered this poem. You kind of alluded to that before. Will you talk more about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I was thinking about like my personal, like, impact on the planet like all the the waste I throw away you know I think for the first time I felt like the moral weight of what I was doing you know mm. whereas in the past I would have just um I, I was numb to it I think we're all pretty numb to it because how else do we function mm -hmm. <laughs> and yeah. I also believe that um systems of power are the problem and that it's not an individual's burden to fix climate change. It's so far progressed and it's so, it's so unforgiving to the individual. But at the same time, it was really just mind blowing that this was the first time, like as a 24 year old, that I thought to myself, wow, I'm really contributing to like the mess that we have made, mm -hmm. you know? And it made me think about, like, what if everybody, like, was able to feel that, like, alive with what they're doing? And then that could actually shift. What if we were able to, like, get people in their pathos to morally feel something? 
um, I think it's kind of funny how we displace our um, frustrations with the powers that be onto single-use plastic when it's actually the powers that be that are to blame. Will plastic make life impossible? I pressed the plastic nipple to our daughter's lips. I wish she too was made of plastic to survive our wasteful hands so that she too will inherit a great future. This has been B-Balm Presents Sophia Ordas, a project of B-Balm Arkansas and KUAF Public Radio. You can stream our series at listeninglabkuaf.com or download episodes wherever you get your podcasts. You can hear Sofia Ordez further discuss the poem The Age of Plastic by Craig Santos Perez on the full episode of B-Bomb Presents, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Our collaboration with Julia Paganelli-Marine and B-Bomb Arkansas takes place in the KUAF Listening Lab at our studio. You and a partner can also record your conversation about anything at our Listening Lab in Fayetteville. Just go to listeninglabkuaf.com to learn more and to sign up. The Listening Lab is made possible by Walmart Foundation's Creating Community in Northwest Arkansas Through Bridging and Belonging Initiatives Grant. Our appreciation to Listening Lab Coordinator Emerson Alexander. Tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, the story of a Wisconsin paper mill a crag in Batesville, and how rock climbing practices help preserve some Ozark recreation. Those guys at Green Bay kind of just heard heard the brothers out, uh, heard the vision, and believed that it, it was going to be a good deal. Maybe there might have been a little trepidation, but nonetheless, they sent out a guy with a backpack GPS. You know, they're like, hey, you've got a gate, you've got the road coming back in here. You know, the gate and stuff is still ours. The land around us is still ours, but y'all... You know, for all your climbing and whatever you want at the campsite area, y'all can have this land for X amount of dollars. That's tomorrow on Ozarks at Large. Congratulations to Springdale native Janae Fleener for being awarded the Country Music Association's Musician of the Year Award last week. It's the fifth consecutive year she's won. The other musicians to win as many as five CMA Musician of the Year Awards, Chet Atkins, Johnny Gimble, Mac McAnally, and Mark O'Connor. The award was first handed out in 1967. And congratulations to all of the Grammy nominees announced last week. There are 94 nomination categories from pop to gospel to classical and everything in between. And a quick and not completely researched survey of the nominees indicates no fewer than 37 nominees who have played in this region in the past few years. And if you want to go back a little bit further, we can up it to 38 if we count Taylor Swift's long-ago show on Mount Sequoia. The list includes Bela Fleck, Edgar Myers, Akir Hussein, and Rakesh Chorasia, who all were just at Walton Arts Center earlier this month, and Pat Matheny, who will open the renovated Victory Theater in downtown Rogers next spring. And congratulations also to Little Rock native Lazrael Lisson for his latest film, Christmas Angel, released just this past weekend on BET+. He's now directed eight films in conjunction with BET, Netflix, Amazon, and Lionsgate. Last week, I reached him in Los Angeles by Zoom and asked him if directing a Christmas movie in any way makes for a different feeling on set. Like I always tell people, you know, when we're doing, when you're doing stuff like entertainment, it's like grown people playing a game of pretend. So you're, you're actually living the dream. You're living, you're out here doing something that you've been doing since a kid. So I carry that attitude with me when I'm doing film. And I and I think it, it, it kind of be contagious where I love it. I love what I do. And I, and I just, 
try to make the set positive, but to answer your question, yes, I think that knowing that it's holiday, knowing that the script is like heartwarming and it ain't like going to be a sad ending, you know what I'm saying? I think it kind of makes people feel good. Yeah. You're, you're living the dream. You're an adult playing pretend, but you're still the CEO of this effort, this, this seven-figure no. thing. You've got to hit schedules. You've got to have everyone no. there. So it's still work. No, no absolutely. absolutely. I, I don't take – again, I've been doing this for a long time. So, you know, I, I'm at a point now in my career where, you know, I understand all the different things that – to make a great film. So – and I surround myself with great people. And so, but I always try to, it's definitely when I, I never say it lightly when I say a game of pretend. So I don't want people to misunderstand when I say that. It's still a business, but I always try to tell people like, when you're doing this, first off, you gotta do it for the love of it. Do it for the love of it. And then keep in mind, like have fun, have fun because you're living the dream. That's what I mean when I say that. But, you know, I, I surround myself and I, I am the CEO of, of my company. And I work hard. I work hard every day. But I also at a place where I'm like, OK, you know. Enjoy the process. And I think that I begin to enjoy the process. And it's when I begin to have kids and you begin to think about everything that's important in life, you know, putting all that in perspective and recognize that you do what you do because you love it and you keep getting better because you love it. But, you know, you also got to have a balance. And for me, the balance is seeing my kids and coming home, you know, the wife and family and all that stuff. I'm not a director, never have been, never will be. So a bit of patience, please, with this question. But there's a scene in the trailer that I think most people would think, oh, whatever. And it it just looks like it might have been difficult for me. It's a character walking by a swimming pool, talking on a cell phone. Everything's in focus. We see the image on the phone. We see the person talking. And it it's perhaps one of these scenes that's just a few seconds in the film but I'm imagining for a director, it takes a while to set up and make sure it's flawless. Uh, absolutely, absolutely, because you know, you, you're shooting things separately. You're shooting what's on the phone separately as a beautiful scene, you know what I'm saying? And then and then the phone, you're shooting it as a composite, basically like a placement. And then you gotta integrate that on the phone and, and so, yeah, I mean, everything, when it comes down to film, that's the misconception that people have. Um, they like, you know, it's, it's long days. It's long days. And that's what I come back to this very point that you have to love it. You know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? I've seen people come on film sets, even certain actors, and they come on there and they ready to leave after a couple hours because it's long hours, but then you got people that come on there and they could stay there 14 hours, you know? And it, it, it's because to me, it's the most amazing feeling. I mean, I just enjoy, I enjoy the process of creating, of telling a story that can affect people's emotions. 
you know? And that's what I mean by when I come back to when I say pretend, because you, you're basically taking an empty canvas and, and putting life on it. Lazarel Lisan, film director and Little Rock native, talking with me from Los Angeles via Zoom last week. His latest film, Christmas Angel, can be seen now on BET+. We'll hear more from that conversation Sunday morning on Weekend Ozarks at Large. From Little Rock, I'm Stephen Cook with Arkansas. This is a story of the Rock Island Line. Rock Island Line is one of the most celebrated train songs of all time. The song feels like a part of Americana that has always been with us. Actually, it's from the 20th century. It was first recorded and likely originated in Arkansas. Folklorist John Lomax and singer Lead Belly recorded prisoners singing the Rock Island Line in fall of 1934. They actually recorded two different versions of the song at two different Southeast Arkansas prisons that fall, one in September at Tucker Prison Farm in Jefferson County and one in October at Cummins Farm in Lincoln County near Gould. It was Leadbelly's first ever excursion with Lomax. They were funded by the Carnegie Foundation through the Library of Congress's Music Division. Little Rock was the pair's first stop on September 26th. They stayed in a tourist court outside of town and recorded two fiddling street musicians, Blind Pete and George Ryan. They'd met the musicians while waiting to get a letter from Governor Marion Futrell granting permission to record at state prisons. Lomax and Leadbelly first recorded at Tucker and later stayed at Cummins. While there, the pair were stalled for days trying to get their recorder working while also sorting out their own still new relationship. The second version of Rock Island Line recorded at Cummins Farm was the more memorable. They were set up by a barn when the two recorded one of the most famous songs of Arkansas. It was a group effort led by a Washita County-born inmate named Kelly Pace. Eight men swang their axes in time as they sang the opening lines of Rock Island Line. Leadbelly learned the song that night. Well, Jesus died to save me and all of my sin. A while it's Lord at the God, we're going to meet him again. I said, the Rock Island Line is a mighty good road. I said, the Rock Island Line is the road to ride. I said, the Rock Island Line is a mighty good road if you want to ride. Most early versions of the song mentioned the train route as running between Little Rock and Memphis, which the Rock Island did at the time. But lyrically, the train's route shifted over the years away from Little Rock and the song's state of provenance in Arkansas, most often to New Orleans. Three years after first hearing the song, Led Belly recorded it himself for the Library of Congress in 1937, mentioning the impressive axe-cutting team he saw at Cummins in the introduction. But eventually, Rock Island Line became known strictly as a train song, not a prison work gang song. Led Belly recorded the song commercially many times as well, beginning with RCA in 1940. During World War II, he updated the lyrics to reflect wartime troop transports and supplies being hauled on the train rather than carrying livestock. Now that old Rock Island Line train is getting on down the road. 
on the rock on a line. It's a mighty good road on the rock on a line. It's a road to ride on the rock on a line. It's a mighty good road if you want to ride. You got to ride it like you find it. Get your ticket at the station on the rock on a line. Jesus died to save our sins. Really, God, we're gonna meet him again. On the rock on a line, it's a mighty good road. On the rock on a line, it's a road to ride. On the rock on a line, it's a mighty good road. If you want to ride, you got to ride it like you find it. Get your ticket at the station on the rock on a line. Lomax recorded additional versions of the song while at Tucker and Cummins in 1939 and in 1942. For the fourth version, Camden native Kelly Pace, who had led the original Rock Island Line Axe Team in 1934, was back in prison and again recorded a version of Rock Island Line for the Library of Congress. XYZ, catch in the cupboard, but they don't see me. On the rock on the line, it's a mighty good road. On the rock on the line, it's a road to ride. On the rock on the line, it's a mighty good road. If you want wants to ride, you gotta ride it like a bonnet, get your ticket at the station on the rock on the line. Here is the Rock Island Line by Arkansas Prisoners, led by Kelly Pace, as recorded in 1934 in Lincoln County by Lomax and Leadbelly for the Library of Congress. Well, Jesus died to save me and all of my sin. Oh, while it's glory to God, we're gonna meet him again. The Rock Island Line, as recorded in 1934 in southeast Arkansas for the Library of Congress. It's another song of Arkansas. From Little Rock, I'm Stephen Cook with Arkansas. Arkansas is underwritten by Arkansas Heritage. Relive your favorite Barton Coliseum concert memories at the Old State House Museum in downtown Little Rock, where they still play it loud. 
Ozarks at Large is put together in the Carver Center for Public Radio in Fayetteville and is a production of 91.3 KUAF. Contributors today included Victoria Hernandez, Randy Dixon, and Stephen Cook. Matthew produced the program in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. Today is the first day of International Education Week. I did not know that. Well, there you go. Thank you for um, educating me. On well, this. yes. So, and as you might imagine, there are um, events, especially on, I think, college campuses. Mm-hmm. So we'll talk about that a little bit more as the week goes on. And I do want to mention that Wednesday, the day after tomorrow, uh, is the Northwest Arkansas Chapter's observation, observation? Sure, of uh, National Philanthropy Day. Mm. And um, that'll be at the uh, Fayetteville Public Library Again this year, and again this year, I'll be co-MC with Jacqueline House from KNWA, and it's just honoring people who, you know, help out nonprofits do good work. The two of you make a very good pair. Nothing against Jason Sewell, because obviously he's a great co-host with her on Good Day NWA, but the two of you make a great pair. Well, thank you. Uh, I enjoy doing things with Jacqueline, and it's... So interesting because she'll have her script on her iPad, and I've got it on the old school, (laughs) you know, clipboard flipping papers. Handwritten. Yeah. She just looks so much more calm up there, I think. (laughs) But yeah, I'll I'll look forward to that. And let's see. uh, Oh, tomorrow on our show also, um, a couple of songs. Buddy Shoot, who's one of my favorite people, he comes in to do a solo song, and he'll be with uh, Lacey Hampton, who is sort of the host of this monthly singer-songwriters in the round that takes place at Meteor Guitar Gallery mm. in uh, downtown Bentonville. She's not performing Thursday night, but he is. But she brought her guitar, and I asked her to sing a song. Oh, darn. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> She's got such a beautiful voice. So that'll be on tomorrow's show as well. Uh, we have everything—I shouldn't say that. Because as soon as I say that, it's not true. We have a lot of what we've done on Ozarks at Large available to you online. That's very true. Yeah, you can find it at ozarksatlarge.com. You can find the individual stories. Here in the last few months, we've been writing out transcripts of some of our lead stories. You can find really great photos, uh, great quotes from all of the stories. It's been really fun to see um, you know, if you've got it on your phone and you've only got a couple minutes and you don't have the full time to listen to the story, you can thumb through it, catch up with it that way. Um, and, you know, if you're in a time crunch, you can always subscribe to the Ozarks at Large podcast and all the different ways to do that. The Daily Word Game is a good yep. way to stay up to date with Ozarks at Large at Well. You can find all of that at ozarksatlarge.com. I'm Kyle Kellums. Thanks for being with us. I'm Matthew Moore. KUAF is supported by Groundwork. Workforce Housing for Northwest Arkansas. Groundwork aims to create a variety of housing options and mixed-income neighborhoods for the region's workers and their families. More information at groundworknwa.org.